Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists who are committed to planetary purpose, or in other words, holistic visions for planet Earth. My name is Julian Guderlai, and in today's episode, I'm hosting an interview with Guru Ganesha. Guru Ganesha is a child of the 60s. He grew up in a world where social expression and musical boundaries were confined to a very rigid set of rules, and that's the 1950s of America. And his early influences were Jerry Garcia, The Grateful Dead, Eric Clapton, and they formed his early ideas of music um, right before he met Yogi Bhajan in 1972. And that really created a statement of joy. I'm going to quote here. I was inspired in a way that I'd never felt before. It was as if my heart burst open as if it were the sun itself. And today, Guru Ganesha lives in full devotion, committed and dedicated to the expansion of consciousness through song, practice, and integrating um, what I would call the pragmatic realms into spirituality. And he's also the founder of Conscious Selling, considered by many one of the most sought-after sales trainers in the high-tech software industry. And he is very well known as the founder of Spirit Voyage Records, which was born with the belief that the power of sacred music can transform the planet one person at a time. And I had the honor to recently meet him at the 3HO Kundalini Yoga Men's Camp in Vancouver. So with these words, welcome to the show, Guru Ganesha. Thank you, my friend. It's great to be with you. I'm very excited for this conversation because I know you have such an amazing skill of storytelling and so many experiences to share from. So wherever we go is going to be perfect. Good. We'll be spontaneous. I have no idea where we're going to go. So. Exactly. So why don't, we, why don't we backtrack a little bit? Because um, I read in the intro that you met Yogi Bhajan in 1972. But um, before that happened and, and the, the entire like Kundalini Yoga connected as like one of the main energies in your life, right? Um, yeah, what was kind of the situation? Like, what were the adversities or the life situation of like growing up with this 1950s kind of energy around you and the Aquarian age that was coming upon humanity? Yeah, I think, you know, I was born in 1950 in Boston. And, uh, you know, my father's Russian Jewish ancestry. My mother's Irish Catholic. I joke, uh, this is what happens when you mix a Jew and a Catholic. And I don't know if your audience can see me, but, I, you know, it's an unconventional look, you know, for a Westerner. Yeah. A full turban, full uncut beard, you know, hopefully twinkling eyes, at least most of the time. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I grew up in a, it was a very, uh, a kind of a blue collar area about eight, uh, called Natick, Massachusetts, 18 miles west of Boston. And, uh, you know, very tr uh, traditional upbringing, you know. Uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, father knows best to leave it to beaver if, for people of those eras they'll remember those television shows and uh, so we were uh, you know raised to be in this small box and and uh, you know with a with a uh, handful of beliefs that uh, everybody believed but th those beliefs never fully resonated for me and it was also there's a lot of prejudice and a lot of uh, you know, uh, judgment being passed from, uh, you know, uh, person to person, generation to generation. So somehow, uh, 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 well, then the Beatles came to America 
and uh, uh, in 1963 or 64, and they were on the Ed Sullivan Show, mm. which was the uh, the most popular television show of the uh, in the early 60s. It was a uh, uh, a variety show on Sunday evenings from 8 to 9 p.m. And every family there were only a few stations back then, like three stations. Yeah, but every family would gather around their TV. And in our case, we had one of the few TVs in the neighborhoods. Everybody would come over. And uh, when I first uh, saw the Beatles and uh, heard their approach to music, I was kind of stunned because it was so different than any other music. And it really resonated with me deeply. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I had a guitar in my closet, as it turns out, uh, because uh, uh, my cousin older cousin was the studio guitar player on the ed sullivan show and and every now and then during the show they would pan the cameras would pan the band and my father would get excited and say that's your cousin that's your cousin high white so when i was eight years old they took uh took me to new york um uh, i think he lived in new rochelle he had a beautiful home there and uh, which gave me the impression okay being a musician also can be a good career and we all went down into the basement and he had about 50 amazing guitars hanging on hooks in the basement, each with a light on each one, you know, it was almost like a museum down there. And he saw my eyes, you know, were wide open my jaw had dropped. And I'm, as I'm looking at these guitars and he looked at me and he says, pick one out. And I said, really? He said, pick one out. And I looked around for five minutes and I pointed at what turned out to be his most expensive guitar. It was a Gibson semi hollow body electric. I pointed at that and he go, Oh, you would pick that one. Pulled it off the wall, handed it to me. He says, it's yours. Now learn to play it. So we went back. My mother found me a guitar teacher from age eight to 12, a very strict teacher, you know, taught me kind of the fundamentals, how to use all the fingers on both hands, how to have my hands positioned properly, how to sit, all of that. And I was a good student. I enjoyed it, but I, I liked baseball a lot more. So I finally wore my mother down and when I was about 12. It was like, okay, no more guitar lessons for a while. I, I want to play baseball. But then all of a sudden the Beatles are on Ed Sullivan and there was such an enthusiastic response, especially from the, uh, the largely female audience and me, a young adolescent <laughs> male. I'm like, wow, I've got one of those in my closet. <laughs> and it's funny how things work, how de- different stages of your life, different things inspire you. But that whole thing inspired me to get my guitar back out. I started a band. And then when I got to college, I, I fell in with a... Uh, uh, you know, I had started in high school. I had started to become a hippie. And, uh, mm. you know, back then, this was 67, 68. Vietnam was like raging. And, you know, my next door neighbor, one of my best friends, went to Vietnam and, oh, wow. and, and came back and was very, uh, had been very negatively impacted by the experience. I think he was struggling with the PTSD, which, you know, there wasn't a name for it back then. But, um, uh, and uh, I went to Clark University in Worcester, Mass. And there was a, you know, a, a, a hardcore group of, of activist hippies. 
that I fell in with, who also happened to love the Grateful Dead. Now, I never heard the Grateful Dead till like day one of my freshman year in college. But when I heard it, I just fell apart in the most beautiful way. It was something about Jerry Gar Garcia's majestic guitar playing and liquidy guitar playing that resonated with me, you know, down to my core. I call him my first spiritual teacher because, and mm. it was the sound current that was, he was producing, just him, but the whole band together. They were really exploring. And uh, in, in any event, I, 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 um, uh, uh, ended up starting an, uh, an acid, they, they were called, the music they played was called acid rock. So of course I, uh, uh, I had to start my own acid rock band <laughs> and um, uh, met some of the guys, some very talented musicians on campus and we formed a band called Cat's Cradle, which was uh, 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 named after one of Kurt Vonnegut's novels. Kurt Vonnegut was uh, very uh, popular with the, you know, the, the hippie part of the universe and uh, all the war protesters and so forth. And uh, so uh, subsequently, uh, over the next three, four years, I, I've, I uh, didn't really attend too many classes, just enough to get by. And I spent 90% of the time with the band. Now, because we were an acid rock band, we wanted to live up to the genre. So we were taking LSD even for rehearsals. So between, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it was it was pretty crazy. So from <laughs> between '68, this all ties in with meeting the great yogi from India too. So between '68 and '70, late '71, I I estimate that I took maybe 150 to 200 LSD trips. Needless <laughs> to say, my brain was pretty fried. And uh, I, there was a voice that was crying out, and I, I believe it to be in the voice of my soul, which I've also learned through meditation is the quietest voice on the committee. Mm. We've all got a committee, or at least I have a committee with multiple voices up in the right hemisphere of my brain. But that voice, which ordinarily is very quiet, was screaming out and saying, hey, man, you better find an alternative way to feel good, <laughs> or you're going to die like you know, others in our generation were, you know, Hendrix, Janis Joplin, the Allman. In fact, uh, uh, my band, we, were, we uh, opened a few concerts for the Allman Brothers very, uh, a little bit before Dwayne Allman killed himself on a motorcycle. Rumor has it that he was tripping on LSD. And uh, not a good idea if you're tripping on LSD to be riding around 100 miles an hour on a motorcycle. But... Uh, in any event, so, uh, and I'd also had some bad experiences. Most of the experiences I had on LSD were pretty cosmic, but I don't recommend it. And Yogi Bhajan explained later on why it's better to do Kundalini Yoga to achieve the same thing. Hmm. And uh, uh, there, there's a downside to using substances to, uh, you know, uh, achieve certain levels of consciousness. But in any event, um, um, very. I do want to hear about that in a little bit. Let's let's circle back to that one. Yeah, we, but we, but please keep going. <laughs> make a note on that. Yeah, and we'll definitely uh, revisit it. So, um, uh, you know, I just got to the point where ah, I remember what what the seminal moment was. I had my out of 150 or so LSD trips. I had my third really bad. LSD trip. Thing about LSD is it 
magnifies everything. So if you're having a good experience, it can get magnified exponentially, a hundredfold, you know. But if you're not having a good experience, that can get magnified exponentially and strain and, and sometimes to the extent where people get, you know, suicidal and so forth. That's why Dr. Timothy Leary and, and, and Baba Ramdas, when they were into LSD to kind of open doors uh, to higher consciousness, they were recommending that it be in a very controlled environment. And, uh, you know, they were right about that because uh, it's, it's, it's kind of, it, it can get a little scary when you uh, spend eight hours looking at a blade of grass because you're so fascinated by it, you know. But uh, it can also get scary if you start, you identify what you consider to be a defect in yourself and your mind then magnifies that a hundred thousand fold. Yeah. So in any event, um, uh, 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 this particular LSD trip, I was uh, a raging maniac uh, on a night of a full moon in like January, early February in Worcester Mass, snow all over the place. And I'm literally walking down the middle of Highland Street, which is one of the main streets in Worcester, almost howling at the moon when um, uh, 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 a very dear friend and the lyricist for our band, who was also a little older than us and was, uh, teaching poetry at Clark University, but he wrote some incredibly cosmic lyrics for our songs and so forth. He saw me. And he pulls up next to me, he was kind of like a messenger from the divine. And he said, get in. And he drove me three hours west and dropped me off with some friends that, of his that I'd never met who had this beautiful little log cabin. It was a, a newly married couple in their early 20s. They had a little log cabin in, uh, in Williamsburg, Massachusetts, which is about 45 minutes west of uh, Northampton. And uh, with a beautiful stream running in the backyard and a wood-burning stove. And, uh, but in any event, they dropped me off there, and I was still a raging lunatic. I was out of my mind. And, they, they, and uh, Stuart, Stuart uh, Shalom told them that I was, uh, you know, a special person, yada, yada. I was the lead guitarist in the band, yada, yada. Please nurse him back to health. And then he left because he had to go back. So I'm out there. And these people were so sweet to me. And turns out they, get, they had gotten into yoga. There, there was inside the log cabin, there were a lot of books. They were almost all on yoga. They were vegetarian. Now, I, I've been on a diet, basically, of hamburger, steak, and uh, Schlitz beer for the three years that I was in college. And so all of a sudden, boom, stone cold. I'm no drugs. No meat, no alcohol, mm. no nothing. Because you didn't was, even give yourself any time between those trips or those substances, right? It was just like for rehearsal, for concerts, like nonstop. That's correct. Yeah. yeah, it was, you know, it's like, hey, you're 18, 19, 20 years old. You're experimenting full on, you know. Oh, wow. You don't have any breaks, fair? <laughs> Yeah. You just got an accelerator. You know, that's the beauty of the aging process. You start to grow some breaks and some filters and some things like that. But, you know, I, I look back, I don't really have any regrets because I needed that intense negative experience. Mm. Otherwise, I wouldn't have started, you know, I wouldn't even been open to anything else, you know. Mm. And um, uh, so, so... There you are, uh, cold turkey. Yeah. Cold turkey... 
So for about a week, I was just, uh, I mean, as sick as a, a human being can be. I mean, just in utter agony. And uh, also, uh, apparently, when you transition from being a heavy meat eater, eating just plant-based foods, all of a sudden, your body, because it's so much easier, it takes so much less energy for the body to digest plant-based foods than it does meat, you have all this extra energy, which then starts focusing on detoxifying the body. So it starts scraping all the crap off your intestines and this and that. And, and you start all this toxic garbage gets released, you know, through every pore in your body. And so, you know, I went through an intense cleansing. But I came out the other end after a couple of weeks there. I started to feel amazing. I dropped a lot of weight. I had been overweight. I started, uh, they gave me a job. I had to, you know, I had to make a contribution. And uh, so every morning I'm out for two hours splitting wood, which actually I, I became quite expert at it. It felt really good. And then I'd sit, uh, you know, they had a little uh, wooden bridge over this fast running stream and I'd sit and I'd kind of, I didn't really know what meditation was yet, but I would just look down into that fast moving stream and, and it, it put me in a meditative trance. Then, you know, when it got dark, I'd go inside, make a fire and I'd start pulling these books off the wall. There was a complete huge book called the complete illustrated book of yoga, which was every Hatha yoga pose ever, asana everyone on a different page, you know? So I started trying to do Hatha yoga on my own. And, and I, I, was, I was realizing that uh, yoga uh, 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 was a, a really good path for where I was at the moment. It, it kind of had been delivered to me right there. So, and, and I was even try, trying to do it out of a book, I was having some positive experiences, but I felt this longing. I felt like I, I, I needed a teacher. So, because some of this stuff was pretty sophisticated and it was hard to fully grok just from reading a book. Mm -hmm. So interesting, very soon after I had that thought, I pulled this uh, little red book uh, off, off the shelf called, um, there was this great teacher named Swami Vivekananda who came to the West like around 1910 or so. And he wrote a series of books, Bhakti Yoga, Karma Yoga, this particular one I pulled off the shelf was called Raja Yoga. Raja meaning yoga for kings. But it was all about how uh, it, it was teaching you how to be in the leadership position, how to make your mind the uh, serve your soul instead of the other way around. Because the more I read, I realized, wow, my mind is totally in control of my life. And my mind is like wild horses. My mind my thoughts, my desires were like out of control. And so if there was a soul, it was being dragged around, you know, and uh, knocked all over the place. And reading Vivekananda kind of inspired me. I said, wow, so I have a soul. And, and the mind is just a tool, a thought machine. So how to... Uh, how to get to the point where the mind is being managed by the highest possible self. And also in there, and I think check it out, those of you who have access to that book, I think I still to this day remember the page. I think it's on page 17, paragraph two. It says, when the consciousness is ready, 
the spiritual guide will manifest on the physical plane to guide you. And I remember reading that and my Irish Catholic mother had taught me to pray. And I started to pray at that moment that I was ready. And I started praying for my teacher to manifest on the physical plane. Now it didn't happen like Aladdin came out of a lamp. But a week later, I, about three days later, I got a call from my band saying, hey man, how are you doing? Are you feeling better? We're hearing good things. Hey, can you do a gig? We got a gig this Saturday night at Smith College, which is a famous woman's school in Northampton, Mass., about 45 minutes from where I was. They said, we've been hired to play in a mixer. Can you play, man? And I said, you know what? I think I can play. <clears throat> and so sure enough, I hitchhiked out Saturday night. They brought my gear because had, I had no guitar, nothing while I was out there. Uh, Shalom had just picked me off the street and dropped me out in this log cabin. So that afternoon after sound check, I'm sitting in a student unit at, at Northampton. And uh, the gig was a mixer. It was a, it was a woman's school and they were inviting the men from Holy Cross and Worcester Polytech and so forth. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden somebody's walking around with flyers and I could almost feel this voice come out of me and say, I'll have one. It was kind of a disembodied voice. I didn't consciously, I said, wow. Did I just say that? And the person carrying the flyer kind of turned, looked, and was holding the flyer up, you know, and there's Yogi Bhajan's Traticum picture on there. It's an intense picture where he's kind of looking through you or looking, his eyes kind of burn right into your soul. Mm -hmm. And that picture comes moving towards me as the person's holding the flyer. The closer it got, the more mesmerized I was. I, the person gave me the flyer, I grabbed it, said classes in Kundalini Yoga, as taught by Yogi Bhajan, in uh, Smith Boathouse the following Thursday night. So I looked at the thing, I said, that's him. First thought I had when I saw that picture is, that's my teacher. And uh, so the next Thursday night, I hitchhiked there. There was a guy, two guys there, one, one small guy with an orange turban on, a few hairs on his chin and a nylon string guitar. And then this tall guy with a big white turban, long beard, who I thought was Yogi Budge. Yeah, yeah. Turns out it wasn't, but I thought it was the whole. So in any event, I had my first Kundalini experience. And I got to tell you, it was powerful. And it was exactly what I needed because it's, 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 it's very intense form of yoga, as you know, because I know you, you're practicing it. Hmm. And uh, I, I uh, so uh, the first exercise was stretch pose. Now, I had never lifted my feet even an inch off the ground. And here I am holding my legs out straight, you know, knees locked, heels six inches off the ground, head up, arms straight out, pointing at the toes. And the teacher screaming at me, because after 10 seconds, I was in total agony. And I managed to keep, because he kept yelling, keep up, keep up, keep up. I managed to do three minutes of stretch pose with breath of fire. Went in the corpse wow. on my back. At the first time? First time. He was like sitting right in front of me. I couldn't, it was like that male ego wouldn't let my legs go down as painful as it was. You know, I was like, I... I am not going to show any weakness to this dude. And uh, needless to say, 
that deep relaxation, I still remember because I was also reading uh, Yogananda's book, uh, Autobiography of a Yogi at the time where he talks about astral traveling. And I swear, during that deep relax, I felt like I left my body. And then I could hear a voice calling me back. I came back into my body and I said, wow. I can still remember my thought was, this is even better than LSD. And I needed an intense spiritual practice, an intense form of yoga to help me make the transition from a chemical, chemically induced uh, universe to a, you know, a, a more yogic lifestyle. Totally. So, uh, at, so at the end of the class, I, I oh, after I came, uh, they, so I did about 40 minutes of yoga and then it was about a 10 minute deep relax. At the end of the deep relax, we came up, we sat down, we just sat in easy pose and the guitarist started singing this beautiful melody, singing about Guru Ram Das. Now, I had no idea what the words Guru Ram Das meant or if it was a person or what it was, but the floodgates opened for me. It was like just that sound current, the words Guru Ram Das were like a key that unlocked this big padlock hanging right at my heart center. And my heart center flew open and tears started pouring out of my eyes, but they weren't tears of sadness. It was like a different kind of tear. Later on, I, I read, uh, they call it the nectar of devotion when the heart center opens and it's, there's so much joy and bliss that manifests. Oh, let me turn this off. Sorry about that. That, uh, the tears start pouring out. So my heart was wide open. I get up, I walked up to the gentleman who taught the class and I said, Mr. Budgeon. And he, he goes, ha ha, I'm not Yogi Budgeon. And I said, well, and I don't know who you are or where you guys came from, but will you take me with you? They looked at each other and laughed, spoke for a few seconds and they said, okay. And boom, I've been on this path ever since. Wow. To, to, just to finish that story. So yeah. they took me back to the ashram they were living in in Mon Montague, Mass. And it was the beginning. Thursday night was the beginning of a four-day weekend kundalini yoga intensive. I had just accidentally, quote, right? Been, right, yeah. Uh, dropped into the middle of uh, 66 people showing up for a kundalini yoga intensive. You so know, then and I this was really is so hooked. exciting. This is so exciting because, <laughs> as you're saying, like you got really hooked. It's it's those circumstances of spirit or the divine intervening. I mean, you were obviously ready, right? And then it just takes you. I feel like my my generation and, and possibly younger people too. Um, we're just from such a different time now, where we have this overstimulation of possibilities, right? Like I can only imagine how. Um, you were like so ready because you've gone way too far the other way with the LSD, um, which I can't even imagine how far you must have gone. Like that sounds like way more than I could possibly take. Um, but it would be hard to put into words, you know, I wanted yeah. to try. <laughs> but it's, it's so interesting because my experience in, in personally and also from lots of the, the peers and the people I work with is that there is this steady self-doubt, this self-doubt that shows up about, well, this was great and this yoga weekend was good, but now what, and is it really for me? And do I have to identify with this? And um, can you maybe like touch a little bit on that? Because it feels like the way you're telling the story that you had just this like clarity of clarities, that this was right, 
that no matter what other voice is active in the comedy of your mind, this is just what you're going to say yes to now. Well, and, and that clarity wasn't like seven by 24 by 365. Mm. It was at that moment in time, the, 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 uh, the class and the experience of the mantra and singing the mantra, I, had, uh, I, I just had this incredible sense of knowing that I had a strong connection with these folks and that I was just inspired, hey, it felt so great. I said, take me with you. I went immediately and boom, a four day Kundalini yoga intensive where I didn't really have much time to think. I was just trying to keep up with everybody. And, but, uh, and, then, and then I moved back to Worcester Mass because uh, I was going to Clark University and I went back soon thereafter. And the first day I'm back, I see the same poster classes in kundalini yoga as taught by yogi bhajan i had never noticed anybody teaching yoga at clark university the prior three years so it was in the basement of a dorm so i went there and i was the only student and another guy shows up a tall guy with a turban and a beard and at the end of that i said well where, where do you guys have an ashram around here he says As a matter of fact we do and i said well can i see it we we walked for a mile and a half and i get to the ashram Little ashram is kind of in a townhouse, the lower floor of a townhouse with a big picture window and a candle burning there. And they had no furniture in there. They were yogis, you know, except the little table in the kitchen, but it was down on the floor. You know, you're still sitting in cross-legged style even for eating there. And, and when he showed me around, we went into one room, bedroom in the back, and there was another fellow with a turban on painting the room. And I'm like, hey, What's the, who's this room for? And they both looked at me and they said, well, maybe you. And you know what? A few days later, I made the decision to move out of the dorm and move into the ashram. Now, a few months later, I ended up going for, quote, teacher's training down in Washington, D.C. We had a much bigger ashram there. And they told me they thought I was uh, teacher material and my ego, you know, ballooned up. Oh, I'm teacher material. Oh, okay. Teacher's training. And watch. And I get down there and basically teacher's training in 1972 was being the dishwasher at the Golden Temple Conscious Cookery <laughs> hours a day. We had a vegetarian restaurant. That, that, that taught you quite a bit. <laughs> but it's exactly what I needed at the time. But let me tell you, talk about doubt, because that, that's what uh, you, know, you, you brought up. Here, here, so two months in, I'm going to tell you a story to illustrate the kind of doubt that attacks everybody, regardless of when you make a decision to walk on any path. You're going to have those voices. So um, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm up to my ears and, you know, unwashed pots from, uh, from the, uh, the, the uh, pastry lady that came in early, from the cooks that came in early. I was in a foul mood. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to catch up. And they, the waitresses are coming in, showing me forks that uh, still have crusty old pieces of food on it, like the machine's not working. And I'm feeling so negative and one of the veggie choppers who at the time vegetable chopping was kind of like one cast up from dishwasher you know it was a higher level in the community she comes up to me and she says to me hey man can i give you some input and i'm like no well she says i'm gonna give it to you anyways 
She says, I see you every morning in sadhana. And when it's time for the Guru Ramdas chanting, because we chant the Guru Ramdas 31 minutes every morning from like 6 to 6.30 after an hour, hour and a half of yoga and stuff. Mm. She says, you get your guitar on every morning. You're strumming your guitar. Sometimes I see tears pouring out of your eyes. I've never seen anybody in the community more blissed out than you. And then by 11 o'clock in the morning, you're back here in the corner and you're the most negative person I've ever seen working at our restaurant here. Why don't you apply some of this, this mantra stuff that you love so much? And why don't you chant while you're washing your dishes? Make believe the sprayer. You know, they had one of these high powered sprayers. You spray the dish, put it into the machine mm. or spray. Why don't you make sure to believe the sprayer is your uh, guitar and uh, start chanting. See what happens. And I'm like, because I was really negative. I'm like, you know, I was, I, I was, I was having morning after that's morning. It's really morning. hard to imagine from, from where I've met you and how you are now. Yeah, but that's, well, it, that's it, the kind it, of doubt, right? Yeah, it, it was doubt. And I was, I, you know, the kind of thoughts I was having is teachers training. This is bullshit. What kind of cult have I got myself into? Yada, yada. You know, those kind of thoughts. And uh, then... Finally, a half hour after she left, I'm going, well, I guess it can't get any worse in terms of just my pure negativity that was being spewed from uh, being transmitted from my mind, through my physiology, through my voice, you know, because when you're, when you're negative, it gets transmitted in a variety of ways. So I said, all right, I'm going to try it. So I grabbed the sprayer and I'm start washing uh, another tray of dishes. I'm going, guru, guru, hey, guru. Click, dish in the dishwasher. Guru Ram Das, Guru, click. Guru, Guru, Vahe, Guru. Guru Ram Das, Guru. And you know what? It felt good. It's, it felt good to take my mind, you know, from all the negativity and just get it into the mantra. And about a couple minutes later, because, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm an enthusiastic singer. I may not be a great singer, but I'm an enthusiastic singer. And before you know it, everybody in the kitchen was chanting along with me. And we got, you know, 10 people going, Guru, Guru, I, hey, Guru. And before you know it, the whole kitchen started to run like a, you know, like a well-oiled Mercedes, you know. The, it, it, it was just all of a sudden, I, I, you know, the waitress comes in and says, what's going on in here? Everything's caught up. The, the food's coming out faster. The dishes are cleaner. You're caught up on the pots. And I realized, oh, my God, the power of mantra. Mm, I had no idea. I mean, it. It, it transmuted it and it turned work into worship. And it wasn't like overnight, but I started remembering, I started doing more often. A couple months later, another gal, one of the waitresses, I got a marriage proposal. And I says, why would you want to marry me? And she says, well, you're the most positive guy in the community. And I'm like, wow. You mean in two months I had transformed myself from being the most negative guy in the restaurant. But it was a great lesson to me and I became very, I'm, I mean, I have an addictive personality as you can already tell from the stories, but I had, I had effectively transmit, uh, transferred my addiction from drugs and, you know, particularly psychedelics to mantra and chanting. And, um, that is my go-to, 
even when my wife and I are having a bad day, you know how couples sometimes they trigger each other <laughs> yeah, into yeah. this negative interlock. One who is in a real relationship and is, <laughs> is, it doesn't try to pretend like that. Doesn't right. Happen. It doesn't try to pretend, but you know, you're in one of these conversations where mm. it's just not going to get any better. It just keeps getting worse. My wife is such a spiritual being and she'll look at me and she'll, she knows my weakness. And she'll say, Gurganesha, let's chant to Guramdas. And I go, but I can't say no to that. I right. just can't say no. So I all right. And we sit down and we put on our favorite uh, recording of the Guru Guru Wahi, Guru Guru Ramdas Guru Mantra. And within five minutes, we're hugging. We neither of us can even remember, you know, what 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 was bothering us. And even if we can, it looks tiny in comparison yeah. to the You know how because big. it is tiny, right? I mean, drama is, is close up, and then once you zoom out, it turns into comedy, right? Exactly, and it, it's just like all of a sudden, you got a new perspective. So you know, I've I've uh, pretty much dedicated my life now. I mean, I have still have my day job and you know the conscious selling thing, but you know the real juice for me is getting out there and and uh, you know uh, delivering a chant concert and helping facilitate 50 100 200 people singing together mm -hmm. positive you know i want to tap in and do a few of those vibrations because, yeah because i really appreciate that you you brought out like the the origin origin story because i feel like that is what you know a lot of people who who haven't yet committed to a a, a clear practice whatever it may be for them um You know, it, this is the real struggle for, I, I think, modern humans in the 21st century is this like internal longing. We know there is more, but then externally, it's not always really clear where, where to apply it. And, and I said this before we started recording, like you and the people around you in, in this lineage of teaching, you've really mastered this uniting this duality of like, spiritual realms and spiritual practice and devotion right which i believe is the highest form of beingness for a human at this point and bhakti and singing but you've united it with with the pragmatics and with with interfacing with people who um probably don't want to wear a turban and grow a beard but who are like in a suit and in silicon valley and all they think about is making dollars and so let's let's jump right in there conscious selling and and You know, you, you are one of those really sought after conscious sales teachers. How does that look on your internal world? Like maybe, maybe first question, part of the question, like why, why do you also do that? And then how do you actually balance it? Because I know for myself and so many people out there, that's really um, a tricky quest, actually. Well, I think, you know, the key to success in business Is, is, is understanding and having the faith if you do what's right, then you're going to be successful. And, uh, and um, for example, I work, I'm hired by large tech companies to train their sales force, gen generally a business-to-business -business salespeople who sell uh, primarily complex, big-dollar technical solutions. And, uh, you know, and it could be anywhere from, uh, you know, three months to 18 months, you know, uh, for a salesperson have to manage a lot of moving parts before they can even get a yes or no in some cases. 
But you know, when I, if I if I interview these people, you know, before the training, and I ask them the question, well, if you have a meeting set up with a prospective client, what is your intention for that meeting? I'd say ninety-five out of a hundred will answer to make a sale. Mm. And then it becomes clear to me as to why they're struggling. Because uh, uh, that intention uh, doesn't take into account the reality that their solution, what they're selling is not for everybody. You know, and that, so if I, first and foremost, if I can rearrange the neurotransmitters in their brain, help them, help them help create a paradigm shift in terms of their intention. Because when their intention is to make a sale, first off, uh, all right, well, let me take a step back. The right intention ought to be, I only want us to consider doing business together if we're both convinced it's the right thing to do that A, it's going to truly be in the best interest of the client. Not only is the solution going to solve whatever problems they're trying to solve, but both parties need to believe that they'll get a, you know, they'll get an excellent return on their investment because businesses need to get a, a return on their investment. And also from the seller standpoint, uh, it has to be at a proper margin so that the seller and the seller's organization feels good about it. I call it win-win business. Yeah, and when the prospective client senses, like one of the things I train people to say early on in a call, but mean it, is I don't know yet if our products, our services, our solutions are right for you. I would need you to feel comfortable opening up and telling me about your current situation in the areas where I may be able to help. What's working, what's not working, what's important, what's less important, where you want to be, where you are now. Then half hour into our conversation, I'll be in a much better position to speak to whether or not I believe we can help you. And if I do, I'll give you a brief, maybe two, three minute high level overview of what I have in mind, but mapped into the issues you really care about. And at the end of the meeting, we can mutually decide, do we want to take some next steps or not? And when people realize that you're sincere about that, the defenses drop. Yeah. Because the vast, you know, every seller I train is also a buyer. And I'll often ask them, hey, when you're buying, have you ever had a bad experience with a seller? hundred out of a hundred hands go up. Everybody's right. had a bad experience with the seller. Well, describe that seller. What, what was it about them that made you uncomfortable, made you not okay? And they'll say, well, he was too pushy. He was aggressive. He was, uh, sometimes they'll say needy and it was transmitting neediness. He was desperate. He, uh, didn't listen. He wasn't fully present. I didn't trust him. And, uh, you know, so right out of the gate, have to people, all right, if you, if you want to build trust, then you have to be trustworthy. And 
and uh, you know, so you have to come in with a different kind of a mindset and almost have a spiritual belief that even if you don't make the sale, you're going to be okay. That doing what's truly right is the best path for a business person. And you want to know something? Um, I'm training some of the biggest, most successful companies in the world at Salesforce. Uh, the fast, the, the company that took the least amount of time to go from zero to $13 billion in a year. I've trained thousands of their salespeople over the last 11 years in a conscious, in this conscious integrity-based approach to making a sale. Not, not everybody can do it because some of the some of the uh, the, the younger folks do f have a sense of desperation you know and whenever that desperation gets transmitted um uh the person on the receiving end does uh, the the trust just you know dissipates and the walls go up and they're six feet thick of reinforced steel 100 percent, i think all of us can relate in, in our own ways, either through being a buyer or even if it's an electronics in an in a electronic market, right? Or being a seller to some degree. But you mentioned trust there. And trust is a topic that um, comes up almost in every episode. Um, and I want to make it really personal. Uh, so I can only imagine, right? Like a little backstory to, to, to myself. Like I'm obviously, I'm, I'm not wearing white. I'm not growing a beard primarily because I can't. Um, and I'm not wearing a turban, right? Um, so, but I've trained myself to, to cultivate openness because I've realized that this is one of the fastest tracks to continue to be a lifelong learner. The world outside though, I'm not entirely sure if this is like everyone's uh, modus operandi. And I, I remember a few months even after the Kundalini men's camp, I remember talking to my dad and he's like, hey, so this yoga retreat you went to, that was a a little estranging, to be honest. And I'm like, yeah, what do you mean? Like we were, we were kind of chuckling because he, he's a good friend of mine at this point in our life. And I meant, oh, because they're all wearing turbans. Yeah, don't worry about that. But then a week or two later, I actually had this thought for the first time where I was like, well, that's true. Like I just blindly trusted this whole community because that's just what I do. Wow, I'm, I'm just naive because, you know, naivete is part of my asset, but then also part of what every now and then actually cultivates doubt, right? And so I went through this whole microcosm of, of my own experience, which I think is, is just yeah, it yeah. Really happens. But I want to bring it back to you. So if I, if I picture you going into a room with, let's say, a thousand people of Salesforce, like Dreamforce is fully happening. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. How do, how do they receive you and how do you mitigate that? How do you take this and transmute that they see this, this guy in a turban with a beard and you use it in your advantage to cultivate trust? The minute I walk out on stage, the f first thing I'll say is, uh, hey, generally when I get in front of a group, first thing people want to know is, uh, Ganesh, what's with the turban and the beard? You sound like you're from Brooklyn. And I'll say, there's an easy explanation for that. You see, my father's Russian Jewish ancestry. My mother's Irish Catholic. This is what happens. <laughs> they warned you about mixing Jews. Everybody laughs. Ice, yeah. Or I was in Houston a couple of months ago in Texas, mm. you know? And uh, almost a different culture down there. I get out on stage. First thing I did, I looked at everybody because I could tell they were staring at me like, what's going on here? Why did our uh, boss bring in the Ayatollah to do sales training? <laughs> and uh, I looked out at everybody and I said, not the most popular look here in Texas. 
the room exploded in laughter. Mm. So what you what first what you got to do is you got to address the uh, six thousand pound elephant sitting on the dining room table <laughs> and show that you're you know you're a lighthearted human being. And show how comfortable I am just being exactly who I am. See, I, I don't wear a turban because Guru Singh's wearing a turban. <laughs> I don't wear a turban because anybody else is wearing a turban. I wear a turban because I like it. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. Did, any, was, did anybody at men's camp apply any kind of pressure on you to, to be wearing a turban and to be wearing white? No, actually, um, quite the opposite. Other than in the Guadwara, of course, that there's like a head cover um, kind of protocol, which, which I can absolutely respect because there's lots of protocols and, and lots of different yeah. belief and faith directions. No one mentioned even once that I was wearing black. Not even a single person asked me about it. You want to know why? We don't give a shit. Exactly. What and that's wearing. what made me you know, so aware to be like, oh, cool, I can just be me. And then I realized exactly. people that were actually in most like energetic integrity, something that, you know, um, I've spent the last 15 years in practicing and training that myself. I was like, oh, all these people are just really happy to be themselves. And this is something I, I experienced with my, my clients and mentorships and in, 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 in coachings. And I see with my friends, like, it's almost like every human being has two conversations inside their head. The person they think they should be and the person they really are. And it seems right. to be an ongoing struggle for humanity between the person we think we should be and the person we really are. It could be more than two. <laughs> yeah. I've simplified, yeah. But, 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 but I agree with you. And, I mean, and, and I'm not immune from it either. Hmm. I mean, I, every now and then, I, 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 you know, and I listen to all the different voices, but I recognize them. The mind is a thought machine. Hmm. Its job is to produce thoughts. Now, if you, you want to have high, high caliber thoughts or low caliber thoughts, well, a lot of that has to do with the breath. Now, the average human being is taking about 12 to 18 breaths per minute. Mm -hmm. When you're stressed out, sometimes you end up, you breathe uh, shallow and rapid. You take between 20 and 30 breaths per minute. When you're really, really super stressed out, borderline, uh, you know, needing to take some second nulls, your, your, your uh, breath rate is over 30 breaths. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? So what I've learned, yeah, and Yogi Bhajan uh, preached this, you know, and, and one, one thing I liked about Yogi Bhajan, he always told us, he said, hey, don't just believe what I'm saying. Try this stuff. If it works for you, do it. I mean, he gave us thousands of different sets of yoga and kriyas and meditations. I only use a handful of them. I use the ones that work for me. But um, I, 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 what, what, what was the point I was getting at there? I had a little senior moment. No, that's all good. I, I think it was interesting to go into the breath because it is right. so powerful to slow your breath down to, let's say, six really conscious breaths in a minute and realize how nothing really matters at that point because you can just well, be really calm. But where we came from was this idea of trust and how you create trust with an audience and, and, and in general, like how we trust ourselves to be who we truly are and not this idea of what we should be or could be. Well, I, and what you said about the breath was exactly where I was going. Because hmm. uh, Yogi Ji said, if you can slow your breath rate down, even for five, 10 minutes, 
to where you're taking under six breaths a minute, or ideally, you know, you, you work on this one minute breath and you can sit five, 10 minutes in one complete inhale, hold, exhale, takes 60 seconds. The caliber of your thoughts is, uh, is like on a, on a whole other level. Now he said that, and I was like, okay, great, but I've experienced it now. And for example, before I'll go out in front of a large audience, I'll sit and do maybe 30 minutes of one minute breath. And when I step out on that stage, I have this deep sense of calmness and confidence that I own the room. Mm. And, 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 this, and, and, you know, and I've been teaching salespeople how to meditate before a sales call so they can be more, they can be more calm. They can be more fully present for the other person. When they ask a question, they have the patience to let the other person actually complete the answer mm. before they, you know, jump in with their next question or whatever. And you're just so much more uh, uh, effective, impactful, if you, can, if you can come from a deeper place. In fact, to me, the highest practice for me now, and I just turned 69, so I'm on my 70th journey around the sun, mm-hmm. is perfect stillness. And that's the area where I need the most work. And I've been trying to do it after, like in the morning, I'll do my yoga set, and then I'll do my uh, one-minute breath. But then, at the end of that, I'll just try to sit perfectly still it's kind of that's all preparation just let the breath become natural and try to get to the point where there isn't one cell in my body moving and go into that space for two or three or four minutes that's transcendent that's where the knowingness comes from and uh and 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 then you get all this also in business you get this deep sense of knowingness that you're, you're going to be totally fine whether you make a sale or not. Hmm. The other person feels like, wow, this person's listening to me. This person understands. This person cares. This person is not trying to get their needs met. They're trying, sincerely trying to do what's right. Hmm. And that and level this, of trust yeah. brings tremendous success. And I mean, this is why I'm having, having you on, on the show right now, right here, because it's so important to showcase that this triple bottom line, this triple win where you win, I win, the entire planet wins can be our modus operandos on this planet for everyone, right? I mean, it's still a lot of work to do to get there, but it's, it's possible. I have a, a question that's connected to it, and that is, my personal experience actually over the last seven years and a lot of the peers that um, are kind of in my, my personal tribe, I would say, I feel like we all had to go through a certain experience of like, once you reach your initial moments of stillness, right? These moments where you're like, you are like whoa, gone for a few minutes and you realize nothing mattered and everything is just so all right. And if, that with, if that's with substance or without, I have no, no judgment for it. But a lot of people, and myself included, come back from some of those experiences and the world around us, the pragmatic realm, seems to be, it seems to be like, oh, that doesn't even matter. Or 
oh, now I have to apply myself in that world. Oh my God, why are all these people doing what they're doing? And so I want to really like understand how, how did that motivation, that optimism, that conviction of your planetary purpose, right? Of you showing up as who you are, who you're meant to be. How did that become such a clarity for you where you're happy to teach the salespeople? You're happy to not just sing and do what is the most devotional piece, but to really show up for, yeah, reality in that sense. Well, you know, it's an interesting question because uh, several times uh, I went to Yogi Bhajan while he was still alive. You know, he passed, he just passed away exactly, you know, 15 years ago in a few days. It was October 6th, uh, 2004. But uh, I had started the sales training business in 1989. And, you know, it took me a couple of years to really get it in the gear. But it started to do extremely well in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, uh, netting close to a million dollars a year from delivering sales training. Uh, but, uh, you know, having this longing to be doing more music than saying, so I'd go to him. Uh, one time was like 1997, after eight years of the sales training, I'm kind of feeling burned out on sales training. And I, I, I felt like, you know, I want to be doing something a little bit more kind of directly spiritual. So I put together this, and I, you know, I had been making a lot of money, so I had some discretionary dollars available. Mm -hmm. So I came up with this uh, plan to, uh, to create this cutting-edge yoga center and uh, spiritual entertainment facility in Reston, Virginia. Did up a 35-page business plan. It's going to be a place where on a Friday night or Saturday night, instead of going to the multiplex, you could come and watch a movie like Fierce Grace by Ram Dass, you know. Mm. Uh, entertainment had really touched up or that movie Awakening. Uh, oh, one second. Yeah. There you go. So where were we though? <laughs> you, you were just mentioning that the cineplex of another kind of dimension, right? Like there was the entertainment that was actually spiritual in nature. So, you know, every now and then you get, even though, I mean, what, what Yogi G was kind of moving us towards was to be able to really go inside yourself and get the answers instead of always calling him up, you know? Hmm. But in this one particular case, I really wanted to get his blessing. I was going to shut down the sales training business, open up this beautiful spiritual entertainment, yoga center, healing center. I got this 35-page document. I set up an appointment at the ranch in New Mexico. Finally, I'm sitting in the other room. He calls me in. He's got all his staff sitting around him. He sees me holding the document. You know, I'm still like four or five feet away from him. He says, give me that. And I reached him and he took it. He didn't even re look at it. He ripped it into confetti and threw it at me. <laughs> and he said, I want your picture hanging in the lobby of every major corporation. <laughs> Basically, what he was saying is that a big part of my purpose was to be out in the middle of it. And via my presence, touching and uplifting and inspiring people to go within themselves, not to become Sikhs or not to become Kundalini yogas, 
but just inspire people that you could be living in your highest consciousness and operating in the mainstream universe Expand. and not sacrificing anything. In fact, <laughs> being way more successful on a mul you know, multiple levels by operating with kind. So I kind of got the message. And then uh, a couple of years later, I started Spirit Voyage, the, the beginning stages of Spirit mm -hmm. Voyage. And we made some, one of the records we made was with Seal, Guru Singh and Seal yeah, called yeah. The Game of Chance. And we made Sonatum's first album. And uh, so I took some of the early recordings to Yogi Bhajan. I was kind of thinking maybe I could get his blessing now to shut down the training. <laughs> and I walked in, he looked at me, he grabbed the CDs, had uh, somebody on his staff, put him in the CD player, started playing like the uh, mix from uh, the Sonatum's first solo album called Prem. You know, I think it was the Gobinda Gobinda track. And he sits there and he closed his eyes. He looked like he went into like this blissful state opens his eyes after the song was over, and he said to me, do both. <laughs> I didn't even bring it up. He just said to me, do both, meaning just keep the training business going. You need to be out there. You need to be touching people out there in that arena. Because these are powerful people that are out, you know, Absolutely. in the business community. And if, you can, if we can help them to have a smidgen of consciousness, and I believe everybody has goodness and light inside them, that we can have a big impact, you know, you know, have no idea the kind of impact you're having, Julian, just in your daily life mm. by being out there and vibrating at the kind of frequency that you vibrate when you, you know, do yoga mm. and meditate. Yeah, it, I, I, I feel it. I, I see it and I, I, I believe it. And I, I've made it more and more the important piece in my own life. And the doubts have shown up for me personally, and I know for lots of people where it's like, oh, I wish I could just do this beautiful, devotional, amazing thing. But I, I, I get that in the state of the world in which we're in, there's so much work to do. There's so kind of like the do. same message is coming through. Yeah. Do both. Do, do both. both. Yeah. And that goes for everyone listening. So we, we've already had an amazing conversation this last hour. And I, I feel like we could talk all day and it would be worth recording and sharing. But I want to make sure we're kind of looping it back in. So we're honoring um, the, the time that we set for this as well. So I remember we paused something earlier. And that was about substances and ah. why it is maybe an initial path for many. And it had been for you. Um, and in some ways it has shown up in my life as well. But then there is another way that XJBS is, I would probably call it more holistic, but I want to, I want to hear what you have to say about it. You know, I trust each individual to kind of make those decisions for themselves, you know? And, uh, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, I, you know, and you're, you're also talking about how, uh, uh, you know, a lot of folks, there are so many options now in this internet age. Yeah. There's so many options in terms of finding a significant other. There's so many options in terms of, you know, what to do with, uh, with your time every day. You know, what career path to walk on. Spiritual paths. I mean, there's so many different uh, uh, forms of yoga and great meditation teachers and religions and, and this and that. I, I, there's something to be said for finding one that really resonates for you and really taking a deep dive into it. 
And uh, so I, you know, I don't believe that my path is the best and only path for me or anybody else. But I, I, looking back, I feel like it was a really good, uh, good decision I made to, uh, you know, and Yogi G was a, a bit of a Saturn teacher and a, a disciplinarian. Mm. So, uh, you know, I'd say for a quarter of a century, I had a really strong, uh, you know, 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, sadhana every day. Now, my sadhana is not, you know, I'm not a guru singh who's been keeping it up for five decades. Mm. But I've, I, you know, I've kind of taken the best of and turned it into a 45-minute daily practice that just works like a charm for me every morning. But I made that decision myself. And, um, but I, I, I do feel that uh, it's helpful to find a, a form of yoga or a form of meditation that really resonates for you and then do it consistently enough to experience the full benefits of that practice. As opposed to, you know, every two weeks, you know, as Yogi Ji used to call it a spiritual shopper, you know. Mm. And, uh, you know, but I, I think every individual's kind of got to decide that for themselves as well. The, the one reason I, I, I related to the Sikh path is that the teachings, uh, 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 nobody on the Sikh path has ever claimed this is the only way, in fact quite the opposite that's quite refreshing right yeah the seek path is about honoring and appreciating and experiencing all the different paths and i'm a lover of chanting all the different names of god from all the different paths you know with as much enthusiasm as i chant to Guramdas. but you know Guramdas kind of has a special resonance for me i understand Guru Ganesha, I have one. I don't even know if I answered the question, you original did, question. Did. We, 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 didn't, we didn't really answer why not to take substances, but oh. I think you diplomatically said you trust people um, with their own choices. And so if that's someone's choice, it's also to be respected, right? And, um, but the well, I think there, there's some definite, yeah, and I think there are some definitely valid uh, medicinal uses for, you know, things for uh, uh, cannabis, I think can be. Uh, 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 have a very positive uh, impact on people, particularly physically, as you mm -hmm. age, in terms of reducing uh, 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 what do they call it? inflammation mm -hmm. and things like that. They're finding that CBD uh, can it yeah. be extremely beneficial. It's plant medicine, you know. It's it's when you get to the point where you're overly relying on it to put you into a certain state that you can achieve through oxygen. I like it. This is very much how, how I relate to the entire field and topic is, is oxygen is, is really the supply. Right? And it's free, man. It's I free. Mean, you yeah. can run up quite a cannabis <laughs> bill if you're relying on cannabis to make oh, you yeah. feel good every single day, right? <laughs> yeah, and you will, I mean, you know, breathing and stretching and moving is, um, this is who we are as this human animal in, in which we, we live for, for this lifetime, right? This has been a fascinating conversation. I have one last question, which is why I came up with this notion of planetary purpose and green planet, blue planet, and this idea of holistic visions that I'm supporting the, the narrative building around it, right? And so basically, very shortly put, the question is, what's your dream for the earth? What do you feel and see becomes possible, especially when we zoom out um, from the drama of today into the wide angle shot, the comedy of what it could be 
And I want to frame it with one more sentence, which, which for me, it has to do with a seven generational thinking where we, we, we go out like into the understanding of where our DNA came from, where our DNA is going and who we're impacting. And so what's your dream for the earth, Guru Ganesha? Well, uh, I, I actually believe that we're on the cusp of transitioning into a period of time where we're, we're able, uh, by living consciously, by truly committing to living for each other, that uh, we create a worldwide enduring peace. And it's not just there's, there's peace for all, and not just life for all, but opportunities for all, jobs for all, good quality food for all, clean air for all, you know, uh, uh, move, move you know, all the good things. There's so much activism, uh, people of your generation and even younger, my, uh, my grandchildren's age, so much more evolved in terms of their thinking and, and, and being non-judgmental and embracing everybody for exactly who they are, who they want to be. As long as somebody isn't, you know, imposing their will on somebody else, you know, as Paul McCartney and John Lennon said, let, let it be, you know? Mm. So I, I, I do really believe, even though it feels like just the opposite is happening right now, I think like what's going on right now is pushing everybody to become much more activistic, you know, if that's a word. In terms of it moving, can be up, now, yeah. <laughs> in terms of moving everything towards peace to all, life to all, love to all, opportunity for all, I believe it's doable. But you know, not if we feel like uh, you know, there's not you know, there's not enough for everybody. So I better make <laughs> sure I get my peace. I would rather go hungry than live that way. Yeah, uh, there's definitely enough for everyone. We know that factually. We know that. We know that esoterically, spiritually, it's just a matter of, of making it real, right? And there's so many uh, geniuses in your generation and the generation after that in terms of uh, manifesting just about anything that we put our minds to it. Mm. So th there's, a, there's a big movement happening. I think you're going to see it. I think Mr. Trump's on his way out. And uh, I, I think that 2020 is going to usher in a whole era of the heart. 2020, 2 plus 2 is 4, 4 is heart center. Mm. So good things are about to happen, but it's going to be, a, you know, it's like the ninth month of a pregnancy right now, and it, it could be a very difficult birth. Mm. Thank you so much for your time, your insights, <laughs> stories, your joy, your laughter. I, I totally appreciated every single second of this interview. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Anything you'd like to close with? Just gratitude for the work that you're doing, man. And, uh, you know, that, that, that we're all, because we're all, you know, we're all doing our part to make a small contribution to this movement to a, you know, a better world. Feels good. And so be it. Sadnam. <laughs>